I don't have any Jonathan Edwards to start this week for you. I, I'm not going to be able to tell you that, you know, God abhors you and holds you over the fires of hell just by the very skin of your teeth. To be fair to Jonathan Edwards, he did say a lot of other good things about God in that, too. It was, it was powerful on that part. But that stuff uh, was pretty, pretty tough about the venomous serpents and all those things. But, you know, the truth is there that the sinners in the hands of an angry God, it, it is in a, in a large degree, to a large degree, representative. And the Apocalypse of Peter and the many other books that I could have read you from antiquity to now, that for a large percentage of people in church, whether they know where it came from or not, and not necessarily in the synagogue, especially today, but in church, hell is a scary place where people who don't believe in Jesus go when they die. Very, very scary place. And once there... The idea of being tormented eternally there is not only accepted, it is, it is um, expected, it's, it's applauded, it's required, it's necessary. As a representation of God's perfect justice, you had the chance, you denied it, now suffer. And that school of thought, as I mentioned last week, this is going to be one of the three schools of thought. It's our starting point today um, for the eternal destiny, final fates. We start here again because it does comprise sort of the majority opinion. I think though that, that majority may be changing and, and that certainly has not been a majority opinion throughout Christian history. It still probably is the prevalent opinion, and it is called the traditionalist or the eternalist. Same thing. The traditionalist. Why traditionalist? Because it is viewed as the traditional place of the wicked after judgment. It's the traditional understanding. Eternalist, why do we get that? It's very self-explanatory. You will burn forever in eternal conscious torment. Eternalist. Okay? Now, from Legionnaire Ministries, R.C. Sproul last week, a traditionalist, very, very, very well-known and respected voice of the church. When I quote one thing that someone says, it does not mean that everything they said gets thrown under the bus. Believe me, if that happened, no one would be sitting in this room listening to me talk. Because there's plenty of things I've said that were either wrong or misguided or something along those lines. However, R.C. Sproul's website in this particular area says, For sinners to be consigned to anything less than the horrors of eternal punishment would be a miscarriage of justice. If you deny the free gift of salvation... Purchased through the blood of Yeshua, the traditionalist argument says you must suffer the consequences and literally suffer. Like, and this is the outworking, which we touched on last week, of the immortal soul. The platonic theory of the immortal soul, the soul which cannot be destroyed. And that was worked out further by Tatian in 150, Tertullian later, uh, Augustine 
a little later, cemented by Augustine and had plenty of gasoline and fuel poured on that fire later by John Calvin and the others up until today. You must suffer. If the soul cannot be destroyed and must live forever, and, and if the final fate is to be cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death, then it only makes sense, right, in their opinion. That, of course, you're alive forever, you're in a lake of fire, that's going to hurt. You're going to be tormented. Which I said last week, and I'll say again, is, is strange. That the lake of fire is described as the second death. The final death. But in some way it becomes eternal life death. It's eternal life, but you're like miserable. It's a really, really, really bad eternal life. It's not actually death by this way of looking at things. Consciously tormented alive. If that sounds strange to you, it should. But the objection is that the wicked must be punished forever because they rejected life. You can't spit in God's face like that. You can't reject the gift of eternal life and not expect to be punished in unimaginable torment forever. It's only fair. It's only fair. Anything less would be a miscarriage of justice is the suggestion. Now, I've been promising this for many weeks and today's the day, and tomorrow's, or tomorrow's another day, God willing, uh, that I'll still have a job. Um, and then the following week, we'll continue with what I promised. Controversy. The idea that God, the creator of life, the lover of our souls, would ever allow such a thing to be the state of his creation is indeed somewhat difficult to fathom. I'm going to read you something from a admitted universalist, one of the books which I will uh, recommend so that you can get some perspective. But I'm going to read this to you, and I want you to just listen. One need only consider what ludicrous strains we must place upon our imaginations and our reasoning to accept the very concept of a hell of eternal duration. For it must be a duration of which we're speaking, he goes on to say. Can we imagine... Logically, I mean, not merely intuitively, that someone's still in torment after a trillion ages, or then a trillion trillion, or then a trillion vagentillion, is in any meaningful sense the same agent who contracted some measurable quantity of personal guilt in that tiny, ever more vanishingly insubstantial gleam of an instant that constituted their real life on earth. And can we do this even while realizing that at the point, at that point, his or her sufferings have in a sense only just begun? And in effect, will always have just begun. I am not going to appeal to emotion. I don't need to appeal to emotion. I'm appealing to logic, which um, amazingly does have a place in theology, though it be ever so small sometimes. Logic. Imagine this. Imagine if you own, own. Imagine if you have a child. If you offered to that child 
a life in the lap of luxury, that everything they could ever have would be theirs without work, without strain, without pain, every need met, no need for a job or the stresses of life. They could live in eternal bliss in your house. Wait, is that happening already in this generation? No, they could live forever with no worries. And they rejected that offer. Your child said, no, I hate you. I don't want that. Would you then desire for them that after their rejection, that their pain never cease? That your child, whom you love, would suffer consciously forever a trillion vagentillion years for making the decision contrary to your will to reject your free gift? Is there any offense, any disrespect, any all-out hatred that they could perpetrate against you that would leave you wanting them in torment, consciously, never-ending pain for a trillion vagentillion years and only then to just be beginning their pain? I can't, I, I cannot as a man, imagine when I look at my three children or my grandchild. I can't imagine that. I'm only a man. And so I, I understand. I know that, that I'm not God. But I do know that that's a view of God that honestly many, 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 many people struggle with. And... Oh, here he goes. He's going he's gonna to tug on the heartstrings about our kids. He's going to water it down. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm just going to speak logically. You would give them the opportunity to make the choice with which you had offered to them. You would give them that opportunity knowing that you had provided it, that you had given this to them, but they chose to reject it and that unfortunately there would be a grave consequence in what they would miss out on because they rejected your gift, and that those consequences would be severe, but that it would not result for them in burning in flame and acid forever, all time, unimaginable duration. That God now would resurrect the body of the wicked in some new supernatural form that could be burned up or gnawed or eaten by worms or decayed every 24-hour period only to restart the process the next day and go back into the muck and the mire and the acid and have babies shooting rays of lasers into the eyes and, and, and doing this, that God would resurrect the body so that worms could gnaw over and over and over to be resurrected into some kind of morbid, never-ending cycle of torture. It seems, seems unfathomable when compared to the nature of God. It seems that way. However, because that is so incredibly difficult to imagine when compared to God's nature, the eternalist position adopts a different viewpoint on what that actually means. That eternal conscious torment 
Some say, yeah, that apocalypse of Peter stuff and, you know, burning and all that. That's exactly what it is. And you, I remember, Damien, we want you to go to church with us. You're going to burn in fiery hell forever when I was young. Spend the night with my friends and their parents would like make call the night, 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 the night before. Make sure you bring some khakis. We're going to go to church. And somewhere in there was a discussion about what it means to avoid hell. Because in their mind, that is what was going to happen to me. And they loved me and they cared about me and they didn't want that to happen. But there's this easier way. There's this easier way to be eternally consciously tormented. And it's proposed this way. And it is, it is absolutely more palatable. So I read now from a traditionalist source. I told you we had all kinds of sources we could look at. Probably need some reading glasses, Dr. Eisner. Hell is hell for those who are there essentially because they are completely alienated from God. And wherever there is alienation from God, there is always estrangement from one's fellows. This is the worst possible punishment to which anyone could be subject to. To be totally and irrevocably cut off from God and to be at enmity with all those who are around oneself. Another painful consequence of such a condition is to be at odds with oneself torn apart from within from an accusing sense of guilt and shame. This condition is one of total conflict with God, one's neighbor, and oneself. This is hell. If the descriptions of hell are figurative or symbolic, the conditions they represent are more intense and real than the figures of speech could even express. You understand the point? It's conscious realization forever that you missed the glory of heaven. That's the other way that you can be eternally consciously tormented, which is much more palatable, as I said, than the other things. Sort of like what we saw in this short afterlife picture we, grant, we saw in Yeshua's parable of Lazarus when he looked, when the rich man was looking over the chasm and seeing him there, right? That that, that was, and he was tormented. He was very unhappy, And that language, that figure, the, the language that this, this perspective says that when we talk about unquenchable fire and worms that do not die and all those other kinds of things, that's figurative. That's describing the feelings that you're going to have inside when you look across the chasm and realize you're out. That Yeshua used the most terrifying symbols to help our earthly minds comprehend what this separation would feel like. This, this forever for a trillion vigintillion and then just getting started mistake that you made. Okay, now that is a little bit better, right? But forever? Still, still, forever, forever. That they have to live forever in the abandonment. Why? Why is that? Why does that need to be worked into the theology? One reason. Because if we take Plato's development of the immortal soul and run it all the way through the machinery of Jewish theology into the early church fathers and then ultimately up into the, the 300, 400s and the, the councils and all that stuff, the only thing you're left with is that the soul cannot die. 
which is what was adopted by the Platonic and Neoplatonic church fathers. And therefore, there's no way that you can ever not know. So we're going to tone it down away from acid muck fire. But you're still going to be eternally alive in death and feeling pain and agony. Because the soul can't die. But here's another interesting twist to that. This one I find just also, I find it unique. It's not only that that's going to happen to them, and I want you to take, back, take us back to Luke 16, to Lazarus and the rich man. It's not, it's not only that, they're gonna, that the rich man's going to be looking. You are going to be able to see it, and you're going to like it. You're going to like what you see, kind of like a men's warehouse commercial. You're going to like the way you look. You're going to like what you look at. When you look down and see, and you, you can, we can go back to Jewish theology on this and remember how the rabbis talked about you don't want to be one who's looked upon, you want to be looking, looking at. Talking about the worm that does not die. But keep in mind, in Jewish theology, those are corpses. Those are dead corpses that are being eaten by maggots. In this particular case, you are going to look down and forever, anytime you want to start your day right in heaven, you can go look at them being tormented eternally in their pain. Why will you like that? What kind of sick system is that? Why would you like that? Because God likes it. Why? Because God is justice. And that's what justice looks like in this perspective. You made the wrong decision. Suffer. And because God hates sin, and we become like God more than ever before in this, now we can fully understand why they deserve what they get, and we look upon them, and we enjoy it. Here's a little bit more. The knowledge that sinners receive their due causes satisfaction at seeing the scales of justice balanced and the violation of God's holy law avenged. We experience this even now, though in an imperfect and distorted way. In the eternal sense, we shall experience this even as God does and be fully at peace with it. Does that sound weird to you? It does sound weird to me. It's, it's sort of what I imagine would be like, God forbid, a criminal perpetrated a crime against my family and I lost a relative due to this person and they were executed. And I went, as families do sometimes, and observed the execution of this person. There would be some sense of justice in that, even though that would be really hard to do. And you, you would need, even in that situation, you'd need to eventually forgive the person for your own spiritual health. But imagine, 
every hour of every single day, I go back and watch him come back to life and be electrocuted again or hung or lethally injected. And I'm doing it over and over and over again because I just want justice. I need more justice. The Torah portion this week says, justice only justice shall you pursue. Is that justice? Is that what that looks like? What I believe God's justice looks like is consistent with what God says in the Torah. Where God says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And I don't know if that's what that is. As a matter of fact, I won't draw many conclusions, but I will draw this one. And... I just, I'm just going to say it, because I wouldn't hide it from you. You should know, as the leader of the congregation anyway. I don't believe that. I don't believe any of that. I don't believe it. I don't think it's consistent. That God is just, and as a consequence, he must punish sin. Amen. He will. It's true. I know that. That much I know. Is the choice we make have consequence? Yes. Is there punishment? Actually, yes. But I sort of have to leave that there. I can't take it to that point. I don't believe that. Now, the easy turnaround is Yeshua says, oh my gosh, I have so much to say, and it's, I'm, I'm never going to be able to get all this in. I'm going to try. Yeshua says, eternal punishment, weeping, gnashing of teeth. All that sounds pretty hellacious to me. Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and goats. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And that certainly seems to suggest that those to the left, the goats, are going into everlasting punishment. That's exactly what it says. So how in the world are we supposed to argue around that when that comes out of the mouth of Messiah? Those to the left, the goats, are going into everlasting punishment. And he talks about that. But, but, but here's, it's, it's this easy. It's this easy. Everlasting punishment does not mean necessarily being punished everlastingly. You see the difference? Everlasting punishment does not mean an active, ongoing, verbal process of being punished everlastingly. If the punishment is to perish, to die, to be separated eternally from God, and to know that you have missed the opportunity, that is a punishment with eternal consequences. As the 17th century theologian Herman Witsius said, and I should have put this on a slide because it's in Old English, but listen to what he said. May it not in its measure be reckoned an infinite punishment should God please to doom man who was by nature a candidate for immortality to total annihilation from whence he could never return? 
He says, is that not enough? Is that not a punishment of everlasting duration and consequence that God could choose to put this man who was a candidate for immortality into total annihilation from which he should never return to life? That's an eternal punishment. Hebrews speaks of an eternal judgment, but it does not mean a judgment that continues eternally. You are not constantly being judged. There is one judgment that takes place after the great white throne. And that is resulting in an eternal judgment, a judgment of eternal duration. Do you see, do you see the easy English usage unless you really want to build some creative stuff in? Those are the words of Messiah, which brings us nicely to the alternative viewpoint. And this one actually won't take long, thankfully, because it makes a lot of sense. It's logical and it's scriptural. Although, Alan Gomez, biblical scholar, traditionalist, and a whole world of others could tell me why everything I'm about to say is wrong. And that's okay. The conditionalist. The annihilationist, that's the second school. We just finished eternalist and traditionalist. The conditionalist, the annihilationist. This view, when properly understood, says this. There will be an irreversible and eternal punishment for non-believers. That punishment may last for a period of time. We've observed this, haven't we? In our, in our look at some of the Jewish theology and the parable of Abraham, of Lazarus and the rich man. We've looked at this idea of some punishment, but it will end. It will end. It will not be a conscious torment forever in hell. And here is the important, very important distinction and why the school of thought carries the name conditionalist. It suggests that contrary to Platonic thought and early church thought that developed into eternal conscious torment, your soul has a conditional immortality. That means you make the choice as to whether or not your soul will exist forever. It's up to you whether or not you get to have that happen. If a certain set of conditions is met, you can indeed go from judgment into glory. What are those conditions? Well, the most obvious one is the acceptance, the affirmation, the belief in, the declaration of, the fact that Yeshua is the Messiah. Yeshua is the Messiah, and with that comes an eternal promise of eternal life. There is another one, which I'm not going to talk about this week. We'll talk about it next week with the universalists who get their own week. <laughs> and don't get scared. I'm not going, to, not going to do that. So what this says is that we are to take very, very literally the scripture where Yeshua says, don't fear Dana. Don't fear Jonathan. Don't fear Aaron. Fear the one who can kill, who can destroy body and soul in hell. Who said that? 
Yeshua said that. Fear the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. What does that mean? If I'm reading that in plain Greek, now if I'm reading it in English, it suggests that your soul can be destroyed in hell. Unless a certain set of conditions are met which would prevent that. And the number one is what? Yeshua. Yeshua. Conditional immortality or terminal punishment. You have the choice as to whether or not your soul is immortal. Now, is that, can that be argued against? It, it can be argued against from a platonic school of thought that the soul is immortal and cannot be destroyed. But from Scripture, it's hard to argue against that. Oh my gosh. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, honey. Let's go. So do the Seventh-day Adventists, a good part of the Anglican Episcopalian Church, and so do a whole lot of grounded, respected, Christian, evangelical, and Messianic Jewish theologians. And traditional Jews through the ages believe in something like this. You can have eternal life if you want it. Yeah, the Jehovah's Witnesses do believe that. I read this blog by this guy. Great name. Preston Sprinkle. <laughs> Preston Sprinkle. He said, okay, so the Jehovah's Witness believe that. Does it make me Muslim because I believe in the sovereignty of God? Or because I'm, I'm a Buddhist because I believe in a nonviolent approach to most problem solving? You can't really lay that on me. I'm not a Jehovah's Witness. Paul, the Gospels, the Apostolic Writings, they make one very, 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 very clear point. I don't think it's arguable. Yeshua came to defeat death. That is to remove the curse of Adam that all men must die. To remove the curse of death, to provide righteousness beyond our deeds, that he would remove all doubt regarding our final destination if we would lay hold of that. Because in Messiah, it is not our righteousness which is judged, but his. And in his perfect righteousness, you get to go. That's part of his plan. He came to save us from the inevitable wrath of God. There is that angry God. Okay, hang on. Which in the end of all things would destroy and consume the entire world. Yeshua came that we would live eternally in the new world, which God was restoring, the olam haba, the world to come. And here it is. Here it is. What week are we on, Blake? Ten? Ten. Here it is. What's the name of this series? Is our home hope in heaven? You ready for the answer after ten weeks? Yes, it is. It is. And what I just described to you, where Yeshua will take us after the great white throne judgment, is the place known as, by almost all definitions, heaven, the world to come. That is the world that the righteous inherit.
And so, yes, that is our ultimate hope. Okay? Thank you for the last 10 weeks. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> if only it were that easy. <clears throat> our choice is life and death. And listen to this. Listen to this. Okay? <clears throat> Just stay with me as I read uh, some scriptures. It is important to note when I say our choice is life and death that we look at the most famous of all New Testament scriptures. What is it? It was behind the Cowboys goalpost in the 1980s. Every NFL football game, when the Cowboys would kick a football, a field goal, the, fly, the sheet would drop down and it set on it. The most famous New Testament scripture in all of history. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not be scorched in eternal acidic flaming fire every waking moment of the rest of your life, but instead shall have... No, it doesn't say that. It's a choice of life and death for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The alternatives, what are they? Live or die. Eternal life or, though this is nowhere to be found in the Bible, eternal death. Not eternal life good, eternal life bad. Eternal life or death. That is death. That is death. To die, to be no more, to end. Death is the opposite of life. It is the absence of life. There are two deaths, unless you're Enoch or Elijah. There are two deaths. One you die here. And when you die there, if you are a part of what is called the second death, right? Now, I know that death in many, un, many opinions doesn't actually mean that, but that's what death is. And I want to take you very, very quickly just to one scripture in Revelation. The second death, according to the conditional list, is permanent, eternal, destruction, annihilation in the lake of fire. That's what Revelation 20 says. Revelation 20 says, those who are not found written in the book of life shall be thrown where? Into the lake of fire, which is the second death. Now, let me explain the lake of fire real quick. Are you still with me? Can I keep going? I want to get through this one. Let me explain who's in the lake of fire because Revelation tells you who's in there. Who's, who, first off, who's in there? Satan's in there. Who else is in there? The beast. Satan and his angels. Yeshua refers to that in one text. Satan, his angels, the beast, the false prophet. Okay, And there's a text that says they will be tormented forever and their smoke and it, it, day after day. 
day after day. It is the proof text for the eternalist position that there is eternal conscious torment. Because listen to this, and, and just real, real careful. It says, <clears throat> And the devil who deceived them was thrown into... This is Revelation 20.10, if you're taking notes. A Bible would probably be helpful. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20.15, reading a bit further, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? Seems pretty straightforward. Now who's in the lake of fire? Everybody not found in the book of life. So you got Satan, you got the beast, you got the false prophets, you got your wicked, you got your... Now listen carefully to this. The, the proof text. If Satan and his cohorts are tormented in the lake of fire, and those not found written in the book of life are thrown in there, then they too also must be tormented forever because Satan is. You see the if, then, then? Then those not found also must be like Satan, tormented day and night forever. Now, that is not a conclusion one can draw from that. There's a rule in hermeneutics. A rule. The interpretation of biblical texts, right? Hermeneutics. The principle is to interpret unclear passages or vague passages or singular passages in light of clear ones. So if you find something confusing, then you need to look at all of the other texts and the catalog, the library of other texts that may speak to that. That's a hermeneutic rule. And as I said last week, Revelation is notoriously the most difficult book of the Bible to interpret with its often bizarre apocalyptic symbolism. While that text may seem clear, here's a problem. Okay, you're with me still? We've got all these people and things and stuff in the lake of fire, and now the wicked are in there. Who else is in there? Because Revelation before tells us, I mean, Revelation after that tells us some other, pe other people, things got thrown in. Who else goes in the lake of fire? Death and Hades. Death and Hades, who earlier were personified as horsemen, you really getting it? You're putting it all together? You got Revelation figured out? So now, death and Hades are also thrown in there. So seemingly, they also would need to be tormented consciously forever. I don't understand that. What, what is Hades being tortured consciously for? Well, they're not. They're not. Why? How do I know this? What's the... What's the What's the thing that's going to happen to death? What's the promise, the end result of death? Death is destroyed, wiped out, annihilated. It's done. It's gone forever. Forever. That's a promise. We're counting on that. Paul says that death will be destroyed at the resurrection. Katargeo, meaning to cause to cease to happen. 
So it could be conceivable that something in the lake of fire could also be destroyed. Could it be conceivable, since we're talking about Revelation, which is so easy to understand, could it be conceivable that Satan and all of those really wicked things could actually be consciously tormented forever, but that other things that the Bible says will be destroyed and annihilated could also be destroyed and annihilated. Meaning that Satan and his angels may get a special kind of place in hell, as people love to say, <laughs> but that the wicked and death and Hades will be, as the Bible says, annihilated, removed, destroyed, burned up in the lake of fire. Let me tell you what God says, if that will help you. It's not my interpretation of what God says. In Revelation 21, 4, death shall be no more. Death shall be no more. After all of God's enemies have been destroyed and his people made immortal, no one will ever die again. Death itself is destroyed. Where? In the lake of fire. And therefore, according to the conditionalist, so are the souls of the wicked. And that's it. End of story. Now, that opinion, that opinion is found on the mouths, out of the mouths of Paul and Yeshua and the apostolic scriptures. It's, it's actually sort of everywhere. And here are some rapid-fire texts, okay? Rapid-fire. The majority opinion from Scripture says, destruction is the end of the wicked. First, death versus life. Paul's writings, they don't show any hint of eternal conscious torment, really. And remember, Paul's writings are the earliest, the closest to Yeshua. Romans 6 I'm going to give these to you. You can write them down and look them up later. Romans 6.20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in relation to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of these things is death. For the wages of sin is but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Messiah Yeshua our Lord. Romans 8.6, For the mind set on the flesh is but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is Yeshua came to defeat death and he will terminate it. Galatians 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. James 1.15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. Burned up. Consumed, annihilated. John the Baptist, Matthew 3. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, got to pause. Sorry, one more time. Unquenchable fire. That gets difficult. That would seem to imply, as the eternalists would suggest, that we can have a fire in hell that burns forever, and that's where the wicked are tormented. Let me tell you the difference. An unquenchable fire is different than something that is thrown into the fire that cannot be ever burned up. God can keep a fire going forever. It doesn't mean that what he puts into it is going to be burned forever. The fire itself is unquenchable. But what goes in can be 
destroyed, annihilated, burned up, and consumed by God's unquenchable fire of judgment. God keeps the fan flaming. Flames, flaming fans, fans of flaming. He's fanning the flames. God keeps that. It's also called eternal fire. And in some of the books that I'm going to recommend, if you choose to read them, you're going to read chapters and chapters about the word eternal. Ionos in Greek. It doesn't always mean forever. As a matter of fact, many times it doesn't mean forever. It means for an age. Okay? So you got to, knowing the original languages is very helpful. I really need to learn to read more Greek, but it's helpful. Revelation 20. This is the second the lake of fire. And that's the end of the story. Matthew 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. Matthew seven nineteen. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And what happens? Anyone ever burn leaves or burn branches? What happens when you throw them in a fire? Unless they're Moses' burning bush, they tend to be consumed. You don't set your leaves or your branches on fire and come back tomorrow and take them out and set it again. Oh, man, magic tree. Again. They're consumed. So just in Matthew 13, 40, just as the, as the weeds are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I promise this is the last stop. One more quick look. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? What's that mean? Well, that means you're burning in hell. And you're weeping and you're gnashing your teeth because you just are. Gnashing of teeth throughout Scripture is used as a, uh, what's the term? Not metaphor, analogy, image. What is it? Gnashing of teeth symbolizes anger. You can read about gnashing of teeth in all the rabbinic sources, Job 16, Psalm 37, Lamentations 2, Acts 7. When Stephen was being crucified, I mean stoned, and he was giving his testimony, it says they were gnashing their teeth at him. They were angry, angry. So there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in this place, right? Well, if I am a... a body and soul, sentient, sentient, sentient body and sentient body and soul, conscious. <laughs> if my body is in agony and pain and being burned, I am probably more than angry. I am probably just beside myself in pain and agony. There's something different between being in agony and being in desperate pain. And it says that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but yourselves being thrown out. Luke 28. When you see when you see what's happening, when you see what you missed out on. In other words, not when you feel it, not when you end up in the fire and you're on fire and you say, oh. 
You're weeping because you're now angry and sad. You're looking at what you could have done. And this makes the point of even the eternalist that there is a place and a recognition of the punishment and what you missed out on. That before you go into the lake of fire, you look and see, oh, And then it fades, and you weep and you gnash your teeth because you didn't choose well. There are many more. Burned up, weeds, destroyed houses, discarded fish, description of Sodom and Gomorrah, which did not continue, by the way, being destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, and that was it. It was it. It was done. And Paul, last one, 1 Thessalonians. These people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. What is that punishment of destruction? It is death. It is the destruction of body and soul, which is exactly what Yeshua tells us we should fear. Apart from God, John Stott, Christian theologian, it would seem strange if people who are said to suffer destruction are in fact not destroyed, and it is difficult to imagine a perpetually inconclusive process of perishing. Why must people suffer eternal conscious torment for this equation to balance? Well, for some sick people weird, sick people. It's their favorite part of the story. That they made the right choice and Jesus is going to save them and those other people are going to go burn in hell forever. But they're the minority. I don't, I don't think they're the majority of people. But it is quite simply this. That there must be this immortal soul thing, and I'm not going into that. But listen, hell is real. Eternalists and conditionalists, conditionalists agree. Punishment is real. Eternalists and conditionalists agree. And that God will mete out justice. Eternalists and conditionalists agree. But God is, and always has been, and always will be, the God of mercy and justice. The Torah. From the beginning. Adam and Eve. Of the tree of knowledge, for good and evil, you shall not eat. Did they eat it? Yes, and they died. Choices. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Uvacharta Bahaim, choose life. Did Israel always choose life? No, they chose death. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believed in him will not perish, but will have chaye olam, eternal life. Does everyone choose that? No, we have choices. One is eternal life, one is death. If God knows all things, though, and this takes us into next week, if God knows all things, and so from the beginning of the world has known the decision and final fate of a man would be to suffer eternal torment, then the very choice to create him was an act of limitless cruelty. That's a quote from our last camp, one that gets its own week, the Universalist. I assure you that week will be worth hearing. Because there are considerations there that I'm going to give you that you should chew on, which may provide a whole new perspective on what we are certain that we know about God and his eternal plan. Shabbat Shalom.